to The Business of Being Brilliant, where I explore the human side of work. I talk to business leaders, academics, authors and other experts about what's helped them to work at their best and how we can create organisations where everyone can flourish. I'm your host, Helen Beedham, organisational expert, speaker and award-winning author of the Amazon best-selling business book, The Future of Time. You'll find the show notes at helenbeedham.com where you can also sign up for my insights into the latest work trends, plus some exclusive offers to help you flourish at work and home. Now, let's crack on with this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to this third episode in the seventh series of The Business of Being Brilliant. And I'm recording this short weekly update on Friday the 26th of January. The sun is shining and there's a solitary daffodil out in flower in our garden, just near some pink blossom pom-poms on a viburnum bush. It's a very cheering sight after the storms of the past week. How's your January been? Calm and collected? Or are you sprinting at top speed? If 2024 is already feeling like a bit of a blur and you're finding that the important work is getting shoved aside by the more urgent work more often than you'd like or your flexible working arrangement is morphing into an overwork arrangement then I might be able to help. Join me at my next free webinar on Thursday the 8th of February to discover how you and your team can work fewer hours while achieving better results. I'll explain how to apply some time intelligence so you and your team can make faster progress towards your goals, how you can channel people's work effort into the most important tasks, and how to get your team members fizzing with insights and solutions instead of feeling wired and tired and ploughing on the way they've always have done. The call starts at 12 noon GMT for half an hour and the registration links in the show notes. It's not recorded, so do join me live and have a chat with others on the call too. I've been reflecting this week on different approaches to managing people and work, partly because hitting the headlines midweek was Amazon, who were fined £27 million by the French data regulator for, quotes, excessive surveillance of workers, including setting alerts when warehouse workers took breaks of more than one minute. Eek! Compare that to the time-intelligent practices at Canva, the online graphic design platform, who free up people's time through meeting-free days, sacred lunch hours, reducing teams' time zone spans and letting people choose their office time. It's not hard to guess which approach results in a happier, more productive and motivated workforce. Most organisations in reality are somewhere between these two poles and still working out how best to manage work and people. My advice to clients is always to be wary of top-down, office-wide mandates and to figure out the approach team by team. I've been running several time intelligent team sessions for one client who wants to encourage their teams to reflect and experiment with ways to work smarter, not harder. 
the teams are coming up with practical, relevant changes in their control that they feel excited to put into action. And if you'd like to hear more about these team sessions, there's a link to a downloadable flyer in the show notes, or you can drop me a line at hello at helenbeedham.com and we can fix up a call. Right, let's hear now from this week's guest, who is a leading voice in the debate and discussions about the future of work, and who helps many organisations and leaders to get the best out of their people and achieve their business goals. I could have talked with him for hours. It was such an interesting conversation. Have a listen. I'm delighted to welcome my guest this week, Brian Elliott. Brian is a seasoned executive, former CEO, co-founder of Future Forum, and the author of the best-selling How the Future Works, leading flexible teams to do the best work of their lives. Brian's also recently been named as one of Forbes' Future of Work 50. His work enables leaders to build a future of work that's better for people and for organisations. Prior to Future Forum, Brian spent 25 years building and leading teams and companies as a startup CEO and as an executive at Google and Slack. He got his MBA from Harvard Business School and a BA at Northwestern, and he started his career at Boston Consulting Group, where he's now a senior advisor. Brian's also the proud dad of two young men and one middle-aged dog. Welcome to the business of being brilliant, Brian. Wonderful to be here with you, Helen. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. And reading out that last sentence about your home life, I'm wondering how enthusiastic yeah. those two young men are about walking that middle-aged dog, or does it all oh, fall the, to the, you? The kids, the kids in, in quotes, because they're 21 and 23 now, they, they were never that enthusiastic about walking the dog. They're enthusiastic about playing with the dog, about petting the dog, about being with the dog, but dog walks, not so much. So that was mostly Maureen, my spouse and I doing most of the walking. Yeah, I did wonder that. We used to have the same thing with my stepson who I met when he was nine. He's now 29 and he took a great interest in our ride on lawnmower. And I was all hopeful thinking that's our lawn cutting yes. sorted, but no, he just wants to drive it. It wasn't about the mowing bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Riding around on it is fine but mowing involves like precision and spending a lot of time on it and it's kind of boring it's a job why would we do it but yeah exactly great well you've obviously got such a fantastic career and held a number of very senior roles and just in my eyes do incredibly interesting work talking to clients and organizations about how they work and what better ways uh, they might organize and uh, engage people. What does your work as a futurist look like? Can you give us a flavor of what a typical day in the work oh life God. of Brian Elliott might look like? So the first thing I guess I'd say is my version of futurist is is more in line like with the old William Gibson quote, which is the future is actually all around us. It's already here. It's just not evenly distributed, right? And so I, I think a big part of my job is helping find through research and conversations with people in case studies, best practices that really do align, you know, the needs of people with the needs of organizations. So my, my average day is a bit all over the place, but I tend to do a couple of things. One is I do some advisory work with early stage startups that are out to build services and products that will make work better for all of us because of my background in technology. I can, I can do a bit of that. And then the other thing that I do more of is working with larger companies that are grappling with Everything from return to office and what that looks like to 
preferably higher order problems and challenges like how do we get our meetings driven calendars under control how do we drive engagement with our employees when we're feeling like our culture is faltering and a lot recently about issues around trust and transparency which are really key and really challenging when it comes to both employee engagement, but they're also important in terms of organizational outcomes. Yeah, really interesting. And in that work with bigger companies, it sounds like some organizations might come to you with a very specific problem. Like you said, we've got a real problem with our meetings culture, but yeah. or it might be another specific aspect of the way they're working or the way they're set up to do work. But it sounds like they also come to you around quite intangible things that they've presumably either got data or a hunch that's telling them that might be a problem. Yeah, there's a bit of that for sure, because I'll give you an example. Uh, A company I was with recently with the C-suite brought me in because their employee engagement scores had dropped for the fourth year in a row. They dropped more than other people have seen over the course of the past couple of years. And there was two levels of concern. One level of concern was, um, should we be concerned about this? Like, how bad is it? How does this benchmark versus other people? And the other part of it was, what are, we, what are we going to do about it? And so from a, how concerned should we be? What, what we did is turn the conversation instead into what impact is this having on your business, right? Mm-hmm. Where can you see how that employee engagement is lagging by division, by department, by geography? And how is that impacting employee retention, voluntary attrition, people leaving that you don't want to have go away, as well as the business's performance. And I've seen this enough times to know that usually there's a pretty strong correlation between how a business is performing and the engagement of your employees. And it it can happen in either direction, right? Meaning uh, disengaged employees can have negative impact on the business, but a business that's going into negative territory is also going to be very rough on the employee base. So then you start getting into the the more interesting and fun stuff, which is what are we going to do about it? And that's always extremely bespoke and very much getting into a lot more signals around Uh, what's driving this in the first place and hard to get at through a survey. Yes. And so when you're talking to them about how bad it is it and the impact on the business, are you helping them drill into their data better to identify some of the answers to those questions? There's a little bit, there's sort of three things. One is there's always value to external benchmarking to understand what other people in an industry, in your industry specifically are doing, but also more generally in terms of employee engagement, in terms of flexibility, in terms of you know productivity scores, that type of topic. But you've also got to look at your own data because everyone looks at an external benchmark and says, but we're different here. And so the, the main thing that I've always counseled people on is you need to be looking at two things in tandem, the outcomes that an organization is generating but also the signifiers of whether or not people are happy at work, right? What's your employee net promoter score, right? A net promoter score is what percentage of your people are um, positively inclined to recommend it as a place to work to a friend. And so that's a, that's a big part of it. The other side of it is how do we get a lot deeper on what the root cause is? Because a survey instrument's not going to take you very far. And that usually involves listening. It usually involves a more protracted, longer process of directly engaging your employees in conversation. And that can feel challenging for executives. And I think there's a couple of reasons why, but, it, but I think that, that listening aspect can be really hard for people sometimes. Yes. And do you encounter some pushback from leaders about that? Or is some of their discomfort down to the fact that that stuff takes time to do, right? To go out and 
engage people directly in conversations, to spend time listening. It's not an instant results kind of exercise. And these are busy <laughs> leaders with big targets and massively exactly. full diaries. So exactly. does that feel like just really uncomfortable for them to do? Because my instincts would be, of course, you need to go and find out more about the nature of the problem. There's two issues here. And you're right. One of them is definitely, I don't have time for this, right? I don't personally have the time to go and listen to each and every person. And that's actually a realistic issue, right? And so I've worked with organizations in terms of thinking through things like, what's that middle layer of trusted people that sit in your organization that are not the C-suite, but that are also probably director level and above in an organization that have been around for a while, that both the executives and the individual contributors respect, right? That have trust on both sides of the organization. And how do you think about employing them as sensors in your organization? Because they're the ones that know what's going on better than almost anybody else, right? And they can discern signal from noise in a lot of these situations. What are you doing to gather them as representative groups? And representative is really important here, thinking through who's in that group and how is it composed? Because usually, well, let's put it this way, almost always the C-suite does not look like the demographics of their employee base, right? How many people in the C-suite are primary caregivers? One, maybe zero. How many of them are not white? How many of them are LGBTQ? How many of them are working in different countries? So at any rate, a representative task force can go a long way and help. The other factor is a little more subtle and a little more challenging, but I've had execs admit to it, which is I'm just not comfortable doing that. Or my team's not comfortable doing that because it feels like you're putting me on the front line for people asking me questions that I'm not sure I have the answers to. And that's one of the habits I've had to unlearn personally. Leaders are expected to have all the answers, right? We've trained leaders for decades that having all the answers is what makes you successful. And it's the people that we tout publicly in the media. When the reality is you don't and you shouldn't, and you should depend on your team, but it's really hard to say, I don't know the answer to that question. But if you do, you're not opening yourself up to ridicule or to problems. You're opening yourself up to a team that might just engage with you to help solve the problem. <laughs> but yeah. they need coaching and help in, in getting there. Yes. And I totally understand that discomfort that comes from the public kind of culture and expectation of leaders to be these superhuman beings, right? That know what to do in every circumstance, have all the answers. We kind of expect our leaders to have ridiculous powers and to be capable in every possible way. So I think part of that is on us as the rest of the organization to not yeah. cling on to that ideal or expectation. We also have to, we have to give them a different path. And, and one of the things that I talk about with executives both in groups and one-on-one -on -one, one -on -one is you, you can do two things at once. You can set a highly aspirational vision. You can point to the mountain that you want your team to take, that you believe we will get there. And it is a massive undertaking. But you can also say, I don't fully know the path. I don't know every step along the way in that path. And so I need all of us to work together to get there. And that will invite people along on that journey, invite them to engage in it. And it doesn't at all take away your need to be aspirational and driven and goal oriented. It just means that you need to invite people to help you figure out how to achieve it. Yes. And 
that can be really exciting when it's put that way, right? Everyone can feel yeah. up for making it happen and figuring it out together and build a strong sense of it, I guess, adventure and enthusiasm and, and then through that team spirit. Um, but just coming back to the point you made a little bit earlier about trust and transparency. And I'm partly asking this because I know you are um, an expert around the topic of flexible working and that yeah. your book uh, is very much about that. Um, I know there was some recent research uh, lately that really highlighted the lack of trust between managers and individuals around flexible working and specifically I guess remote working but also time flexibility and, and it related to productivity where employees feel that they are hugely empowered to be productive when they work flexibly uh, and yeah. feel that it's a great boost to their productivity but managers are still deeply suspicious that employees are actually being that productive so I am curious yeah. to know what's your take on that finding and are you seeing that lack of trust still quite prevalent in organizations that you deal with? Yes, unfortunately. <laughs> I am seeing it being very prevalent. I, I think you can see it in the data. Microsoft had some data a year plus ago that said 87% of uh, employees think that they're more productive when they're given flexibility. 12% of managers yeah. think their teams are more productive. Like just the gap is enormous. And I've heard executives say this to me pretty much verbatim. How do I know they're really working? Yeah. Right. And the answer to which is, how did you really know that they were really working when they were in the office? Right. You just knew they were there. You didn't know that they were working. But the better answer is, what are you doing to measure outcomes? What goals are you missing? What outcomes are you not hitting in your organization? And let's focus there on what we're doing. The, the challenge is for every executive who thinks that their employees might be sitting at home quiet quitting that then says, we need you back in the office three, four, five days a week because we need you to be with your team. What people are hearing is you don't trust me because I've been delivering, even though I'm only coming to the office one or two days a week. And so what you're saying is you don't trust me. And then what happens is the employee uh, turns their brain off and they basically say, I'm just gonna check the box. If you don't trust me, I don't trust you. The odds that I go above and beyond uh, drop precipitously. Slack did a piece of research this summer that showed that people who don't feel trusted by their leadership are far less likely to put in extra effort mm. to go the extra mile for a customer, and they're far less productive. And my other favorite is the Institute for Corporate Productivity did a study of organizations, and instead of trying to define what productivity is, they basically took organizations and said, look, the outcomes are really easy to measure, so we can look at companies on the basis of growth, profitability, customer satisfaction, we can rank them, and we can look at the top group versus the bottom group and see what's different. And the biggest difference they found between the top and the bottom was trust. The companies that were in the top group were 11 times more likely for people to say that they felt trusted by their senior leaders. And it was 10 times more likely that senior leaders also said, we trust our employees, which probably means they've invested somehow in an outcomes-driven style of leadership. So there are ways to close that gap, but if you don't do it, you're just going to make things worse, not better. Yeah, really interesting to hear about that Institute of Corporate Productivity Research, because it's something I often talk to clients about in this context, this kind of conversation is, well, how do you define productivity? How do yeah. people know what a productive yeah. day is and looks like? And pretty much universally, they all struggle to answer that. Been having sessions 
running sessions with teams, I'm like, how do you know when you're being really productive as a team, when you're managing your time brilliantly? And they find it a really difficult question to answer. People individually know when they're being efficient. Mm. They know when they are on top of their workload. They know that things are going well. The average measure of productivity in an organization these days, 60% of organizations' measures of productivity are activity. Yeah, so hours. like input-based, exactly. Yeah, input-based. And, and inputs aren't outputs. They don't necessarily lead one to the next. No. And by the way, when you measure that, what you're going to get is people performing to the input. Right? Yes. That's what, that's what they're going to do. If you're measuring keystrokes, by the way, people will buy a mouse jiggler from Amazon for $25 yeah. and, and fake it. Yeah. Someone was telling me something similar. I was amazed because I'm obviously working for myself. I'm not measured in any way around this. But someone was telling me how the latest trick uh, is to pop your watch underneath your mouse if it's a, an analog watch because the ticking motion is read as activity. <laughs> Can you believe it? I love that. I well, that's, great. That's, even, that's even cheaper than buying a mouse jiggler. I know. I mean, the, other one, the other one's happening, at least in the US, is what they call coffee badging, which is in a neighborhood, maybe here in San Francisco where I live, someone will be there in the morning before the morning bus goes down to their corporate employer. They will gather badges for three or four of their friends. They will take the first bus down. They will badge in one, two, three, four, right in front of the security guard. They will come in, they will have a meeting, they will have a coffee, they will take the first bus home with all four badges. No way, no way. And, and you know, four or five people worked in the office that day. <laughs> there was one body. <laughs> it is amazing to think that this effort is going into tricking or defeating the, the measurement system and it makes you wonder how that's going to keep playing out. Or I'm definitely feeling a book in here somewhere about clever, clever ways that employees are what gaming the system but exactly but it is sad because mm. i think one of the things that i wrestle with that i'm i know you do too from from your work we're focused on the wrong problem yeah we're, we really are i say this to executives all the time every ounce of energy that you put into debating a policy about days a week in the office is only detrimental to your business if instead you focus on something that you pretty much agree with your employees on which is we are not making efficient use of our time then you'd have alignment. You could actually work on something together here, which is giving people flexibility and when they work and giving them more heads down focus time drives way more productivity improvement than location in our research. It also is a place where, gosh, we did this late last year. In our survey at FutureForum, we polled executives specifically, and we asked them, what percentage of your meetings do you think are inefficient? And the average answer was 46%. So if nearly half of your meetings could be done away with, with yeah. no consequential impact whatsoever, why not focus there? Yeah. And I do hear organizations and leaders wising up to this more at the moment, like post-pandemic, because meeting volumes haven't really come down that much. But even just asking the question, Taking the average salary across all your employees, how much time are you investing in those meetings? And what kind of return do you think you're getting on that financial yeah. and time investment? It's not a massive effort to do a quick back of the envelope calculation. And I imagine the number is pretty shocking when you do it. Yeah. So I, I do hear leaders saying that they're looking to reduce the number of meetings that they attend by 25% or the amount of meeting time in a week by 25%. And they're being quite open about that. And they're encouraging their teams to do that. And I think that's a really positive way of saying, come Absolutely. on, let's be thoughtful about when we need a meeting, 
And I'm, by the yeah. way, I'm not going to any really badly run meetings. So if you fall in that category, you're not going to get a yes from me. So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Finding ways to put some discipline around that makes a, makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm glad, to, I'm glad to hear that you're seeing that happening. I'm seeing some of it happening. I just wish I saw more of that happening. Yeah, I would say it's piecemeal. I'm not saying it's across the board, but I think I am seeing people like leaders more open to investigating this and willing to experiment a bit. I definitely don't think they've nailed it yet. And I think something, is it something you wrote about in your book or in an article about this idea of meeting budgets? And yeah. We have have played around with that a a bit. Matter of fact, one of the things that we never quite uh, did at Slack that uh, Stuart Butterfield, our CEO and and co-founder was uh, nudging me on more than once was that sort of concept of like giving every senior executive a budget for doing it. We're sitting in an executive meeting talking about this and saying, hey, we all need to reduce it. And one of the other execs said, the problem is that I think my meetings are fine. It's all the rest of you that have the problem. And he was making a joke, but there is a need to like cut it across the board. We did some experimentation that actually led to some really good practices. One of them started out in the early stages of the pandemic. We were in the like early fall of 2020 and people were burnt out because of the number of meetings on the calendar. So in our product and engineering and design team, we declared a maker week. Maker week is cancel all your recurring, recurring meetings for a week just to give people the, the space and the break. We then did it again uh, a few months later and said, okay, this time take, the, take that break, but also think about which of these meetings do you really need? Which ones can you pare back? Which ones have grown from eight people that need to be there to 32 that really don't? What can be done asynchronously because it's just a status check update? And then built that into a program. We then expanded it out from that group to all of Slack into marketing, into sales. And when doing that across the different teams, it really was important to think about how did it translate? Like, what did you need to do differently? And so a great example is the sales team called it customer week instead of maker week, because they wanted their focus to be on spending time with customers, not spent on internal meetings. And you had to figure out how to do a pipeline review asynchronously. So when I talk with companies, there's all kinds of tools you can use. But the best thing to do is pilot these things out and experiment internally with a team or a set of teams, because how you operate will be different from everyone else. The tools you use will be different from everyone else, but use that learning to then expand it out to other parts of the organization and then pick up the next experiment and then pick yes. up the next one. Yes, that that's absolutely what I talk to my clients about, borrowing from the tech world, just trial an idea or trial a concept. Don't design it to perfection and then launch it when you think it's ready uh, because it's probably too late and it's probably over-designed and you've probably got it wrong. So just go with the the minimum viable idea, so to speak, and and work it and test it and get people to see what's valuable from it and how they can adapt it. Yeah. And to the point about the opportunities that lie in asynchronous working outside of meeting times and what you were saying about giving people a bit, more freedom to help figure out more efficient ways of working together instead of taking the three-line whip mandate of, well, it's just got to be X days in the office. What are some of the practical ways that organizations can trial that? Have you seen particular approaches work well in terms of finding the right balance between synchronous and asynchronous work? I think the the biggest place to start actually on all of these things is think about teams as being the center of your universe around it, because that's where most work gets done. It's actually where the most complex work gets done, right? Which is especially cross-functional teams and the nature of how they operate. 
So there's a couple things that you have to sort of set up organizationally and make sure this works, which is you need a team that's going to be working together for an extended period of time, preferably six months or more. And then one of the concepts that I really like that I've seen used extensively and successfully are team level agreements. So a team level agreement says that we're going to sit as a group and we're going to talk through our rules of the road. How do we operate? And the most basic of that can be things like what hours of what days do we expect to be available for each other, right? So one of the issues with flexibility can be the coordination tax that comes along with it. And this isn't just about like picking one day a week when you're in the office. It's actually much more important to think about things like core collaboration hours. So my own team did this where we set 9 a.m. until 1 o'clock on the West Coast, which is noon until 4 o'clock on the East Coast as our Monday through Thursday, you're expected to be available during those hours for meetings, for chats, for calls, because we need to know when we can rely on each other to be there. The rest of the time outside of that is yours for doing focused work, for meetings with clients, for getting the kids at school, for other activities you need to take care of. And that kind of team level agreement goes a long way towards building better performance out of a team. There's a lot more that you do with them. But then once you're doing that with one team or two teams or three teams, you can take it to others. I'm working with a defense contractor in the States currently that's doing this, that they picked up uh, our book, started doing that practice with a couple of teams. It then uh, became something that they're doing across one of six business units. That business unit is now presenting to the rest of the organization at a leadership offsite in December. Here's what we've been doing. Here's the results of it. Here's how it's made us more productive as well as making our employees happier. You should do it too. And so it's much better for them to say why this is successful than for me just to show up and say why this is a good idea. Yes. And what I love about that is that they found a way to invite the teams to figure out the solutions rather than figuring it out at the leadership level and issuing this mandate or top-down approach. It's, it's a great example of really trusting and empowering people to Absolutely. come up with something that works for the business as well as for each employee. It, it's, it's the only thing that works. I keep on having this debate with a few people, but the top down, there's a little bit of the easiest way and the simple check the box exercise here is Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday are the days in the office because that way teams can collaborate and work together. Check the box, we're done. And I've heard some people say, you know, hey, that's the, the best program. And my first question is, how many of those teams actually work in the same city, let alone the same building? You haven't actually solved anything because all you've said is show up in an office when, in, especially in a lot of large organizations now, the majority of teams are spread out across multiple locations. Yeah. So you've really solved nothing in doing that. All you've done is add aggravation into the mix. So work is way more complex. It's way more cross-functional these days. It involves creativity. That's where the hard work happens. That's where we need to actually focus our time and energy and support is how do you help those teams improve their performance? Yes. And to your point about customizing for each team, what's going to work well for one team isn't necessarily going to work ideally for another. So allowing that customization between teams is really important because the nature of the work is different or the composition of the team is different, etc. And yep. I was hearing a senior leader say, well, even when people are physically in the same building, they may not be interacting because they might be on different floors and they can't be bothered to go and walk to the other floor. So you haven't got collaboration happening just because people are being forced to be in the same square footage of office. Yeah, the mythology around water coolers, the mythology around whiteboards is is unbelievable in some ways. But 
I mean, the, there are literal academic studies that show that the only people you interact with are the people that are within 25 meters of where you sit in an office building, yeah. right? The odds that you run into the CEO in the elevator and have a conversation, that's kind of low. <laughs> the odds that the CEO is even you know, in the same building are also quite low. So people love telling the story, but it's not how this actually works. No, that serendipity isn't the key to everything or that no. likely. So my final question is, given that you help organizations and teams and leaders figure out better ways of working, ways that will enable them to be more successful in the future. What inspires your own thinking and ideas? Where do you get those sparks and creativity from? I, well, I love listening to other people, Helen, your, your work to others that have ideas that are adjacent and, and may take me into another additional spot. And also just watching companies that I think are doing a great job of rethinking the role of this. And I think too often people say, well, it's mostly the tech companies, when the reality is, I like looking these days at companies like Allstate, an insurance company in the US that's figured this out. They've done team level agreements, right? They've sat there and said, marketing content designers are different from marketing analysts. Code Epoxy, an apparel retailer in the US that's even taken it further and started thinking about how do we think about how frontline employees and office employees interact with each other? How do they communicate with one another? How do we put them occasionally in the same space so they can get to know each other? Like companies like that that are stretching the envelope of this are the ones that I think are helping the rest of us paint a picture for what work could be and how that helps people broadly, but also the needs of people and the needs of organizations are not disconnected. These things can actually march hand in hand. Yes. And on that note, if people have been enjoying listening to us and our conversation, well, to you primarily and the conversation, and want to find out more about your work or get in touch, touch professionally, what's the best way for them to do that? Easiest place to find me is on LinkedIn. I'm Brian Elliott. I'm pretty easy to spot there these days. Yeah. Brilliant. And I'll pop a link in the show notes to that and to your book as well. And Brian, it's been such a pleasure talking with you about our crazy, sometimes world of work, <laughs> the things that organizations are struggling with, some of the more innovative and creative and impactful things that they're trying to do. And I love the way you frame it and hang it all together around there are ways that we can meet both the needs of individuals and employees at the same time. Thank you so much for being a brilliant guest. Thank you so much, Helen, for having me. It's been great talking with you. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, please rate the podcast online, leave a review and share it with friends. And if you like to watch as well as listen, don't forget the videos are also on my YouTube channel. See you next Monday. Have a great week and keep on being brilliant. Brilliant.